Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 263. It's a, it's a public health crisis just like you know cities created a public health crisis around sanitation and washing your hands and we all we're all gonna we're going through this cultural change we're going to have to generationally learn to do the informational equivalent of washing our hands uh but you know like germs misinformation was always out there um and you know the truth has always been hard to come by that is the voice of dr tom stafford a psychologist at the University of Sheffield. And in this episode, we will hear all about some recent research he has conducted which sheds new light on how we might be able to use science to update the way we create online gathering places so we can get the most out of our natural evolved tendencies and abilities to argue and disagree and deliberate instead of spiraling ever deeper into polarized, dead-end debates. Don't get me wrong. There are all sorts of bad things happening in the world. There are all sorts of places where harm can be reduced. There's a lot of poison that could be extracted from the human experience right now. But I'm going to try to make a case in this episode that there are better ways of going about doing that when it comes to arguing, when it comes to deliberation, when it comes to having conversations with people who see the world much differently than you do. But before we go into all of that, I need to set up what we're talking about in this episode, the science behind what we're talking about, which is, in many ways, an admission of how wrong I was about something that drove my own reasoning for years, which is we are flawed and irrational when it comes to reasoning and intuition and all sorts of other stuff that goes into the human psychological experience. I don't really feel that way anymore, honestly. I feel that we are, yes, biased and we are lazy when it comes to our reasoning. But it turns out that's a feature, not a bug. In psychological research, especially psychological research into human reasoning, over the years, a few standards have emerged. A few reliable go-to testing tools that seem to really deliver to scientists tools they can use to conduct all sorts of experiments in the human cognition. One of those, sort of the gold standard, one I've mentioned several times in the show because I love it so much, is the cognitive reflection test. And this is the most famous question from that test. A bat and a ball costs $1.10 in total. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Now, if you've never heard this before, let me ask it one more time so you can really try to work it out. A bat and a ball cost $1.10 in total. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? You may have heard this before. It's a very popular question from the test. And the answer is five cents. The intuitive answer is... 10 cents, of course, and a large percentage of people tend to answer with that because the laziest, most confirmation biased, go with your gut way to look at this question is to see the phrase 
the bat costs $1 more, and interpret that as the bat costs $1, therefore the ball must cost 10 cents. But the correct answer is 5 cents, because the total must add up to $1.10, and $1 more than 5 cents is $1.05. However, 5 cents plus $1.05 is $1.10. This question, which was popularized in Daniel Kahneman's best-selling book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is one of many on the cognitive reflection task. And they're all like this. And for a long time, especially in the late 2000s and early 2010s, I and a lot of other science writers and science communicators and authors and YouTubers and podcasters and so on have used examples like these to demonstrate the flawed and irrational nature of human reasoning, which is an easy argument to make when you fail so often to convince other people that your way of seeing the world is valid, that your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are reasonable, that the facts of the matter are indeed facts. But recent research suggests all of this frustration might not be with the actual process of reasoning itself so much as it is the context in which we employ that reasoning. And turns out in that framing, all of this is quite rational which is why Tom Stafford has so much to say about this fascination with irrationality. The idea of irrationality smuggles in a standard, the standard of rationality. And so uh, whether we're irrational and how ir- irrational we appear depends on what we preconceive rationality to be. So, you know, are we, you know, are we succeeding? Are we failing? Well, you know, we're smarter than monkeys, but we obviously still make pretty terrible mistakes. And so based on what you expect um, from human reason, what your standard is against you, which you measure us, you can, you can see it, you know, as, as we were succeeding or failing, you know, so you get that kind of figure out ground reversal. Uh, other biases, the thing that stop us meeting some impossible standard of perfect rationality uh, or other biases kind of part and parcel of the, the mechanisms by which we manage to do a, a pretty good job in a world of uncertainty, uh, you know, where we, we, we pull out, we cobble together some some pretty good solutions, um, you know, in, when we don't have enough time or enough information or enough certainty to make great choices. Okay, let's get into the meat of the episode. With all of this in mind, Tom Stafford has recently conducted some research into human reasoning that calls into question some of our previous assumptions, and he did that using the Wayson Selection Task. Here's a very brief introduction to what that is. Research into human reasoning really kicked off in the 1960s, And in 1966, psychologist Peter Wason created the Wason Selection Task, also called the Four Card Selection Task, and it rivals the ball and bat problem as the gold standard for testing human reasoning. In fact, it's one of the most reliable tests of human reasoning, and here's Dr. Stafford explaining it. Uh, Okay, so the the Wason Selection Task was invented by Peter Wason, a British psychologist, uh, I think it was published in the mid-60s, and it's, um, it's like a card game, and you put in front uh, of the participant to demonstrate four cards, and each card uh, has a letter on one side and a number on the other side, and uh, the cards, as you're, you're shown them, have two letters and two numbers, and you tell the participants uh, a rule has been proposed that um, if a card has a vowel on one side, it has an even number on the other side. They look at the cards and they can see one vowel, one consonant, one even number, one odd number. And the the challenge, the task is, which cards do you need to turn over to test if the rule is true or false? The Wayson Selection Task. Let's do it. Let's try it out right here. So another interactive portion of the program, this task, the Wayson Selection Task, the four card selection task, here's how it goes. Imagine you're sitting at a table and a scientist deals out four cards in front of you. Since this is a podcast, this will take a lot of imagination. It's easier to do when you can see it on paper on a screen, but let's try it. 
Imagine it right now. Four oversized cards side by side. In order, they read EK27. EK27. The scientist now tells you that each card has a letter on one side and a number on the other. So cards are dealt out. You're told that each card has a letter on one side and a number on the other. The cards are EK27. The next part from the actual test, this is quote from the test, is your task is to answer the following question. Which of these four cards must be turned over to find out whether the following rule is true or false of these four cards? If there is an E on one side of a card, then there is a two on the other side. E, K, Two, seven, which of the four cards would you need to turn over to determine if the rule is true or false? And the rule is, if there is an E on one side of a card, then there's a two on the other side. If the cards are E, K, two, seven, the correct answer is only turn over the E and the seven. Turning over the K or the two will reveal Nothing that's going to help you. If you picked K or 2, though, you can take comfort in the fact that 90% of people do this. Only 10% of people pick the right cards. And the reason is, and there's many hypotheses for this, but the overwhelming assumption here is that this is because this is a task that requires falsification. Or, in other words, it requires disconfirmation of your intuition and that's the whole point of the scientific method. Disconfirmation leads to the truth more reliably than confirmation. Confirmation often tells you very little. And in the worst cases, it seems to solidify a lot of incorrect assumptions. Lots of people, including myself, for years have used the waste and selection task to demonstrate how flawed our reasoning and intuition is, how irrational and, in a word, bad we can be when it comes to simple logic tasks like this. And if we're bad at simple logic, a lot of the writing about this says you can imagine how bad we might be at much more complex things. They require much more robust reasoning and intuition and logic, which is most of the things that we do. The only problem with all of this is that a lot of this research was conducted on individuals. And a lot of the books about human reasoning, a lot of the hot takes about human reasoning, a lot of the research in human reasoning is focused on what a person does when they're in isolation. And all of that evidence is still meaningful. Those books are still informative, where the ideas presented have survived all the replication and scrutiny over the last few decades. That stuff is great. But it's mostly focused on what people do when they're alone. Because that's a common way to do psychological research on subjects. But the latest research suggests that when you test people in isolation, you get different results than if you test them in groups where they can discuss, argue, communicate, deliberate among each other. When it comes to the cognitive reflection test, reasoning alone, 83% of people who have taken this test under laboratory conditions answer at least one of the problems incorrectly, and a third get all of them wrong. But in groups of three or more, Usually the entire group will change their minds from the wrong answer to the right answer. That's because at least one member will see the correct answer and the resulting debate will lead those who are wrong, which is usually most people, to change their minds. So what seems to be happening here, and there's great research behind it, is that we use one cognitive system for producing reasons and arguments and propositions and we use another cognitive system for the evaluation of other people's reasons and arguments and propositions. That's because we evolved to produce biased and lazy arguments from our unique perspectives and then offload the cognitive labor of evaluating those arguments to group discussions where everyone's arguments can be picked apart for poor reasoning and reassembled with everyone's bits of good reasoning once articulated, once presented, combined all into a cohesive plan of action, and over time, it can become an agreed-upon worldview that itself can evolve each time we meet up to deliberate and trade arguments. And though it can feel like that's what we're doing online, most of the places we currently gather make it much easier to produce arguments in isolation 
than they do to evaluate them in groups. But that should be fixable. Because, as ultra-social primates with the power of language, one of our greatest strengths is group-based problem-solving, group-based planning. So we evolve the ability to argue, debate, deliberate, and communicate with consensus as the goal, whether the aim is to figure out where to go to dinner or whether to change a law. And we're really good at banging our heads together in this way. It's just that we're better at it in some contexts than we are in others. So maybe we could get our online context to sync up with all of this. It should work. It should work. Because if you get people in a group, face-to-face, talking to one another, we often enter what Tom Stafford calls the truth wins scenario. People who perform the waste and selection task in groups will go from mostly wrong as a group to mostly correct through that process. But yeah, as we've covered many times on this show, alone in isolation, we can be pretty bad at these things. And as cognitive psychologist Hugo Mercier told me, if you assumed human reasoning was a tool for individual cognition, it would seem really flawed. But if you look at it as a tool for group-based reasoning, in his words, it all makes sense. And as he put it, quote, it's quite inspiring and sort of beautiful in a way. So this got Tom Stafford to thinking, what if we could test all of these assumptions out? Which, by the way, this mostly comes from the work of Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber. They have a great book about this called The Enigma of Reason. I highly recommend you read it. And based off of this new model called the Interactionist Model of Human Reasoning, Tom Stafford thought, what if we took this waste and selection task, which people do better at in groups, and we tried to create an online environment where people could employ their reasoning in the way it may have evolved to work online. And we could then take what we learned from that and improve online discussions. And he did it. He did all this. We're going to talk about it right after this break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a the therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. And this research uses one of the go-tos that used to be one of my go-tos in the waste and selection task, which is a great way to show how, uh, depending on how you're framing the argument, how dumb we are, or how rational we are, how, how uh, illogical or uh, bad at probabilities we are. And I don't want to step on, uh, on anything you're going to say, but so let me just start by saying, what is this research and how did it get put together and who was involved and everything like that? This is what... Uh uh, led by Yorgi Karadazov at Cambridge. Um, he's a PhD student. He's working with Andreas Flachos, who's in computer science there and a, a natural language processing expert. Um, and I'm I'm on the supervisory team as the, the psychology uh, expertise, emotional expertise. Um, and the, the where this jumps off is this kind of central role that the wastening uh, selection, wasting selection task has in the, psychology of reason but what makes it so beautifully uh illustrative of certain things is that uh about 90 percent of people get it wrong and and it, it doesn't matter the wording it doesn't matter if you put incentives into it it also doesn't matter if you're asking doctors lawyers or scientists uh tends to be pretty standard very high rate of error here am i right about that uh, absolutely i think you can do some things with the wording uh, to make it uh, easier or harder. But in general, people get it wrong. And not only do they get it wrong, but they get it wrong in a particular way. 
And what they do is um, tend to do something that some people interpret as confirmation bias or it's sort of pattern matching to the question. So the, the, the rule you're supposed to test is um, uh, if a card has a vowel on one side, it has an even number on the other side. And um, often people think you need to turn over the card showing the vowel and the card showing the even number. Uh, and that is a mistake <laughs> because, and this is, <laughs> this um, got to hold tight, pay attention here. The mistake is um, the rule says that a vowel has to lead to an even number on the other side. But if you turn over the card that has an even number, you don't know um, the rule is silent on whether non-vowels can also lead to even numbers. So all you can do is prove that uh, a vowel um, led to an even number on the other side of the card by turning over the even numbered card. doesn't test or um, give you the opportunity to disconfirm the rule. So the correct answer is to turn over the vowel because you've got to check that there's even number on the other side, but you've also got to turn over the odd number card so you can uh, check and see if that uh, would be an example of falsifying the rule mm -hmm. correct me if i'm wrong on this but the it one of the ideas here is to show how we are very eager when it comes to creating a hypothesis or testing a hypothesis to go for the con confirmation before we go for the disconfirmation is that kind of how it's framed usually yeah that's yes uh yes absolutely um i think it also shows that we're this is um kind of a logic a logic rule so you can um you can do it with um uh vowels consonants odd numbers and even numbers but the general form is always um if something then something else um rather than you know if something then not something else so mm -hmm. if p then q would be the kind of the logicians way of putting it and you can substitute anything in there and indeed, there's a famous example where if you substitute in uh, something from everyday life, like um, um, drinking and driving, the rule become it becomes a lot easier to do the task. So um, if you drink, you can't drive. And you've got a drinker and a non-drinker and a driver and a non-driver. Who do you need to find out if they're drinking or driving? Well, you need to find out if the drinker is going to drive. And you need to find out if the person who's driving has had a drink. Mm -hmm. Um, so like when it's kind of clothed in this kind of concrete, uh, familiar everyday scenario, uh, people can do the task, but when you abstract it, if P then Q, if, uh, vowel, then even number, then it, then it becomes hard. And that's kind of part of a whole class of psychology, um, kind of demonstrations that show that we, we are, our reasoning is often very domain specific. No, mm. it's not. You know, we're, we're bad with probabilities, for example, uh, but we're better at natural frequencies. What has been like the, I just wanted to uh, elaborate a little bit more on what's sort of been the go-to or most popular explanation for why it's, uh, when it's framed as these letters and, and numbers versus something from everyday life that the success rate changes. I haven't managed to get to the bottom of this. There's a, there's, a, there's a kind of evolutionary psychology school of thought that um, we've got kind of where we're exceptionally sensitive to rule breaking and social rule breaking as a kind of domain specific adaptation we have. Many people you speak to are not convinced by that and think it's more to do with familiarity or, or kind of kind of concreteness. I haven't I haven't got to the bottom about what it is that makes it you can transform the task into being easier. But what it what it does what it says, the minimum it says to me is that, um, like in these other tasks, we're very bad at abstract reasoning, uh, and, but that can be supported if you give people the right scaffolding. So the example I love is the, the um, probabilities where we're very bad at, at kind of, you know, 10% 10, 10 of people or increase it, uh, you know, this number has gone up by 10%, but we're much better at saying, you know, 10 in 100 people and then, you know, uh, doing kind of calculations or adjusting our expectations based on natural frequencies. Um, so you, you can scaffold people's reasoning, but there's, there's obviously, um, when things get abstract, our, our reasoning uh, is often, unless you've got very specialist training, often tends to collapse. And it's a, it's a great task. And it's also great because you can, um, the, the structure's the same, but you can run it on um, 
you can uh, run it uh, with the different le letters and numbers and show that people, if they're getting it right, really understand it. So, for example, I mean, not to leap ahead of it, if you if you give people a particular kind of training or you have them solve it in a group and then they solve, you know, a version with A and B and one and seven, you could then take them out of the group and test them on um, E and K and uh, three and nine. And if they really get it, they can you can show that they really get it by selecting the right answer, even though the the immediate immediate um, cards are different. Okay. So with this established, um, something that I've been uh, eating crow about and then telling people as much as possible, and there's a big part of the, the next book I have coming out, was me saying this at length. A lot of the research that has fueled pop psychology that related to irrationality has had this interesting dimension of it's just been asking individuals to do things instead of asking in, uh, groups of people to do those same things. And that changes the thing, the outcome of the experiment. And the, there's some previous research with this task where groups do better than individuals, but this is the first time, uh, this has been put into a nice quantifiable super framework with an app and everything else. So if you could run me through this experiment, just in the sense of like, what was the, what was the hypothesis and then what was the method and then what did you find? Okay. Let me reverse up a bit. Okay. So like the, the Waiting Task has three amazing things about it. Um, people find it hard. It's majority failure. Um, and it's not just uh, the people get it wrong. They, they tend to go for this intuitive. They tend, to go for this, they tend to go for the same wrong answer, this kind of confirmation bias or pattern matching answer. Um, the second feature is that people um, can be persuaded of the right answer. So it's not, um, not one of those things where you kind of like an illusion, where even if you believe that you're seeing an illusion, you still see it. When people mm -hmm. are told the answer, they, you know, it's, it's possible to change people's minds. So it's, it's a bit like those kind of cognitive reflection task items, like, um, you know, if you dig a hole that's three foot by three foot by three foot, how much earth is in a hole? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and people immediately start to multiply three by three by three. But when you say, well, there's no earth in a hole because it's a <laughs> hole. They go, oh, yeah, I get it. I get it. You know, and the wasting task is that cat kind of that particularly interesting category of there's a there is a right answer and it, it can be conveyed between individuals. And that's that's the third amazing thing about the wasting task is that um, group discussion, small group discussion, a few minutes, three, four, five, six people converts majority individual failure to majority group success. So small groups get the right answer 80% of the time. Isn't that wonderful? So it's an opportunity to look at that alchemy of deliberation. And um, uh, Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber in their argumentative uh, theory of reasoning, which is this account of how reasoning evolved um, to be um, deployed uh, socially, so it's an interactive account rather than an individualist account. They put the waste and task and the way we can um, overcome confirmation bias through dialogue at the center of that account because they say what we're designed to do as individual reasoners is generate reasons why we are right and then other people have the challenge of showing us that we're wrong and then through interaction we come up with, with, with better solutions. So this uh, waste and task is a, a kind of heart of that account and there have been people who've done who've used the waste and task in in small groups to show that groups can generate the majority correct in general groups tend to find the correct answer and agree on it um, and that's part of a research kind of thread around people uh, have done other group reasoning tasks and found uh, that groups can kind of raise the standard of uh, of, of people's answers on, on tasks like this. Uh, but what hasn't been done is collecting the dialogues and making them open as a kind of research, research resource. And that's uh, what we've done with Yorgi. So we've, um, we've, we've put people in chat rooms. You know, we're all, uh, you know, using internet chat a lot more. It's not, uh, not unusual for that to be a place where discussion happens, whether it's by, you know, email or on Slack or whatever. Um, we, we recruited people to discuss the task in, in text. So that's not, they're not face to face. They're doing it in a, a chat room. And that allows us to 
um, record their individual answers before they go into the discussion, record every utterance they make in the text, um, and then record their answers at the end of the discussion when they come out and see how their, uh, their perception of the right answer is changed by the discussion. And so, uh, I mean, the, the great, the, the results, I mean, are, are kind of twofold. One is um, that alchemy, that magic of group discussion is still there. So the, 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 the online groups, which is, you know, the online discussion is hard and like online discussion is not famous for generating consensus or being productive. <laughs> right. uh, yeah. So I wouldn't, and, and, and part of the psychology of group reasoning is that uh, for a group to, to work as a group, they have to, um, they have to have a kind of common task. They have to work together. They have to know what they're doing and kind of have some minimal level of groupness of trust. And so it wasn't, doesn't go without saying that we would, throw people together in these, you know, recruit people from crowdsourcing platform, put them in chat rooms, and they might just, you know, spend five minutes abusing each other or, <laughs> you know, disagreeing or, or like trying to reinforce their intuitions. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that those, uh, those chat room groups do raise their, the standard of the answers um, is impressive. So that's great. So it shows that, the, you know, and also it shows that that, uh, that idea of the group discussion um, creating stronger answers on the waste and task replicates, you know, which is yeah, doesn't, always good. Again, doesn't go without saying in these, <laughs> these days. Um, so that's like one fantastic achievement. And the second one is that we uh, now got a data set, which um, I think we can really look at the, at the micro level of the kind of cognitive transactions, the exchange of arguments. So there's a kind of an analytic opportunity to understand okay, yes, groups elevate performance on this judgment task, but how do they do it? And this, the, this work creates that platform by creating that data set and actually and making it freely available. So anyone can do that. Okay, I'm dropping in just for a second to give a quick overview of what they did and what they found, because I think in the conversation, we kind of got away from that for a second. So here it is. Stafford and his team ran a group of experiments online using text-based chats to replicate text messaging, comment systems, and so on. They recruited people online and then had them use an app-like platform called Dialogue Din, which the computer scientists created, and it will soon be released open source. So what they did is they took 1,579 participants, and those people first tried to complete the Wason task alone, and then they were each randomly placed in 500 separate group dialogues varying in size from two to five people. And everyone was anonymous in those dialogues. Then they faced the selection task together in a way that allowed them to argue, deliberate, and share their reasoning. Alone, 11% of people got it right. Together, 33% got it right. That's not as high as when people do it face-to-face, which bounces those numbers way higher. But it is much better than working alone, online, assuming you have the right answer to something, and then adding that answer to the marketplace of ideas online. Also, in half of the groups that got the right answer, no one had the right answer before the group discussion. If you find this as fascinating as I do, there's a link in the show notes over at youarenotsosmart.com if you would like to see the actual transcripts of their deliberation. Okay. Back to the interview. This excites me to know um, the context in which we are having our arguments and deliberating. Well, it's not been super promising. The arguments on Facebook, arguments online. But then at the same time, there's all this uh, data that says that's how we, I think uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing you, you know, like we knock our heads together and uh, and the truth wins scenario that I, that I love that you've written about. Uh, and then, so it makes me wonder if like, uh, these are the knobs we need to tweak to, and this gives us a little bit more shines a little bit more light on what how to improve this because it's not like we're going back to some you know we can't get everybody to go to a pub we can't get everybody to go to a, a town hall meeting like we're going to talk yeah. online so i was wondering what you're, am i in the right yeah, place with I, think, them? I mean that's i mean that's exactly something i'm thinking about a lot is how do we how do we structure groups and interactions so that they're productive you know and it's obvious that you know we can pick on features of online discussion that are counterproductive, like, um, you know, uh, anonymity, um, 
turn, being able to kind of rip things out of context and uh, kind of, um, you know, edit a video or take a tweet and just, you know, put it to a completely different audience. You know, these are things that kind of don't encourage um, understanding. But, um, you know, there, there must be the opposite things that we can do to platforms to uh, help people be better collaborative reasoners. How, how much um, did this context improve the uh, outcomes of the ta- of the doing the task? Um, it's, it's much less than face to face chat, and uh, I I'm not sure to the extent to which that is because it's not face to face, and so there's kind of like the the bandwidth is smaller for communication. Hmm. Um, uh, to what extent is it because our participants are more diverse? I guess if you're kind of recruiting on a university campus and you're getting students and you're putting them in the room. No, they they'll probably have a kind of existing level of comfort or similarity to each other. Um, also, some of our dialogues were quite short, you know. So the, there was a, I think it's easier to, to kind of minimise when you're in an online chat. You can, you know, some of the dialogues are only 20, 30 conversational turns, thirty messages, um, you know, which is in a room you'd you'd feel awkward and you'd you'd want to speak, but when you're in an online chat, you don't need to. So. Um, Whereas we, uh, whereas in the group discussions you see kind of 80, 90% success, we're seeing a much lower rate of, of, sort of, kind of near a 40% success. But it's yeah, but that's still... <laughs> still a 30% gain, right? <laughs> yeah. That's still an improvement. And there's, and there's a whole, I mean, there's sort of three major things to do next with this. Okay. Um, I think there's some, like, there are control experiments I want to run. So how experimental psychologists think. You know, you want to check, is it really the group deliberation? Um, um, uh, and there's a couple of controls that I think will really r- reveal, test whether it really is. So one um, is a kind of think aloud protocol. So we want to ask people to do the task and just articulate their reasoning process. And it might be that the mere act of reflection, which a group gives you, but it's not about the group per se, it can be got just by kind of, writing it down or saying it out loud that might catalyze improved performance um, there's also a kind of social facilitation effect um, so when you're trying to give your reasons in front of a group just imagining an audience might raise your game uh, so those are kind of control conditions i want to run because uh, i think they'll be good tests and that doesn't mean that group discussion isn't useless because you get those things for free as part of a group discussion but it it helps us understand the kind of anatomy of how these effects works, kind of cognitively. Why does group discussion facilitate performance? Second kind of thing I want to do is I want to do this with different tasks. So the waiting task is really interesting. It's got this lure. It's got this like compelling, intuitive, but wrong answer. So it would be nice to do it with other tasks that um, have intuitive answers like um, often like moral dilemmas or trolley problems seem like a kind of good thing that would be fun to look at but also kind of more maybe kind of also as a contrast case cold kind of you know more kind of calculation style problems that don't have a that are just hard you know mm-hmm. um uh, so kind of uh, the kind of uh, cognitive reflection test items maybe uh, have uh, are less emotionally or morally uh, distracting, but they still have intuitive and wrong answers. And then there's some sort of like brain teasers where they're just it's just difficult to get the right answer, even if you even if um, you're not pulled to the wrong answer. Uh, so I think that's important to establish the kind of generality effect. And then the third thing, which I, you, I am doing right now, as in literally that's what I've been doing today, is uh, looking at at the kind of transaction level about what predicts m- more successful groups. So um, one of the nice features of this data is um, if you look at the end at groups where they all agree on an answer and it's the right answer, about half of those groups, no one at the beginning knew what the right answer was. So that's real magic, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So they've all got it wrong. Every single person has started with the wrong answer. And then they've had a discussion. And these are not long discussions. And they've come out with everyone understanding the right answer. And you can look at the dialogues, you know, and, you know, we, we did some coding on this and, you you know, it's, it's really, it's magic. You see them, people like discussing it and they get halfway through saying something and they're like, no, no, wait, what? And, and you know, it's a, you know, the, the representational change is happening. 
Um, and so looking at um, what predicts groups where that happens, um, you know, so like the, the distribution of messages, uh, you know, is it one person speaking or is it more evenly spread? Um, uh, how does group size relate to, so we know like groups where, which are larger tend to have more success. You know, so I guess they they have access to more cognitive diversity and more, you know, they're more likely one individual. If any individual has a given probability of getting the right answer, a larger group would be more likely to discover it. Um, look at how the, the, the circulation of right answers circulates oh, in the cool. discussion. You know, what, what are people talking about? And do they tend to talk about solutions in a particular order? So there's, there's loads of fun analysis to be done here. There's one other thing in the, in the paper, uh, and I, I see this every once in a while. I'm wondering uh, if you could just elaborate on it and what your thoughts are on it. The, the possibility of creating a chatbot type thing that would could drop into these types of discussions and propel people toward getting the right answer. Yeah. So Jorgen and Andreas are in um, computer science, uh, backgrounds in natural language processing. So you know, they don't really want to be doing psychology experiments with me. What they want to do is be building tools. And um, what this uh, data set does is it, it creates um, uh, a corpus for training dialogue agents so that they could understand what kind of utterances are made in these group deliberations. And indeed, um, by annotating the, utter the, the utterances as, you know, being associated with asking questions or explicitly uh, probing people for their reasons, um, we could then train a bot to make the kind of utterances that is associated with uh, successful deliberation. And that would be super cool. That's so wild. That's so Blade Runner, cyberpunk weird, the idea that we're arguing online and there are AIs that will fly in and help us uh, steer us, you know, appeal to the better angels of our nature. That's yeah. so wild. Well, it, it would be... Um, I mean, it'd be a nice alternative to the troll bots that you get in the <laughs> comment sections, wouldn't it? But uh, I mean, I think like uh, like trust, uh, you know, it, um, good good deliberation is slow to build up and easy to destroy. So I could probably design a bot right now that would make it hard to have an online discussion. But um, uh, there's more effort and uh, nuance that needs to go into a bot that supports good deliberation. So one last thing I want to ask you about is, uh, and just getting your thoughts about it, uh, where are you at these days in what has become a sort of moral panic? Uh, we're in a post-truth world, uh, misinformation's everywhere, democracy is crumbling. This whole thing where, oh no, maybe we, we got the internet too soon. Like, where are you at in all that these days? Uh, I think, I mean, I think we're, we're, it's like a, it's a, it's, it's a public health uh, crisis, just like, you know, cities created a public health crisis around sanitation and washing your hands. And we all, we're all going to, we're going through this cultural change. We're going to have to generationally learn to do the informational equivalent of washing our hands. Um, uh, but, you know, like germs, misinformation was always out there. Um, and, you know, the truth has always been hard to come by. Um, I think, you know, <laughs> being, being um, being wary of misinformation without hysterical is probably the right way. Um, I think you shouldn't you shouldn't confuse the um, the the collapse of deference uh, and the kind of collapse of kind of um, automatic credence to central authorities as uh, the collapse of truth. Thank you so much, Tom. It's always a pleasure to have you tell me how I'm wrong about things and set me straight. I love uh, all your research, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. Okay, well, it's been it's been a pleasure. I'm flattered to be asked, and I will continue to enjoy listening to uh, all your shows. You can follow Tom Stafford on Twitter at. Tom Stafford, S-T-A-F-F-O-R-D. He's also got a website, and it's tomstafford.staff.shef.ac.uk. But just type Tom Stafford Psychologist into Google. You'll find all of his stuff. This concludes this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. 
If you would like to find links to everything we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. For the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, Audible, Amazon, or youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McGraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. And you can also go to places like Facebook slash youarenotsosmart to join conversations about everything. And if you'd like to support this operation, help make it better, help pay for transcription and other services, go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount will get you the show ad free, but the higher amounts will get you posters, t-shirts, sign books, and other stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. And above all, if you really just want to support the show in the easiest way possible, just tell everybody you know about it in some way or another, especially on social media. And check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.